welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, I want to explore something that not only impacted Southwest Michigan, but the entire United States. And that was the introduction of Parcel Post in 1913. And the first decade or so of Parcel Post in existence was a crazy time to look back at of what people were sending by mail. So come along and join me. Let's go back in time to the early days of Parcel Post. So this is an interesting chapter in the history of the post office. Prior to 1913, the United States Post Office delivered packages, but they didn't have a discounted rate like Parcel Post. Starting on January 1st, 1913, they introduced Parcel Post. And I'll read you a little bit of the article from the Battle Creek Inquirer that introduced the service to everybody. And it says, Parcel Post takes effect tomorrow. Now, this was published on December 31st, 1912. This is the big New Year's gift from the government, which presents to the people. May lower cost of living. Brings factory and farm into closer touch with consumer. New system will be a direct competitor of express companies. Shippers have access to 60,000 post offices in U.S. And the article reads, A New Year's gift by the American government to the American people will be a thoroughly equipped domestic parcel post following consideration of the subject in a general way for a third of a century Congress last August authorized the new Postmaster General to establish the new system on January 1, 1913. In actual operation, it is expected that the parcel post will bring the factory and the farm into a closer touch with the consumer and that it may reduce the cost of living. The largest city and the most obscure hamlet alike will enjoy the advantages of the parcel post. It will be open to all on a precisely equal term. The new system will be a direct competitor of the express companies, particularly on small package business. By it, shippers practically may send from their own doors parcels to any one of the 60,000 post offices in the United States. The rates of postage for parcel post matter differ radically from those of other classes of mail. First, second, and third class mail matter now is transported at a flat rate for any distance. Parcel post rates are based upon a series of zones and they increase as the distance increases. The first zone includes all territory within a radius of approximately 50 miles from the post office at which the parcel may be mailed. The second, 150 miles. The third, 300 miles. The fourth, 600 miles. The fifth, 1,000 miles. And the sixth, 1,400 miles. And the seventh, 1,800 miles. And the eighth, all territories beyond 1,800 miles. By the terms of the law, all matter not now embraced in the first, second, and third classes of mail may be forwarded by parcel post, provided a single package does not exceed 11 pounds in weight or is not greater in dimensions than 72 inches in combined length and girth. It is not of any such of a character as to injure the postal employees or damage equipment or other mail matter. 
In a word, it will include all kinds of merchandise. Now, that's a very important point to remember as I tell you some of the stories that I found of what they were shipping across the United States. So remember those points. It was not to exceed 11 pounds in weight, and the dimensions could not be greater than 72 inches in a combined length and girth, so length and width of the package. So they measured it out, and if you were over the 72 inches mark, it was too big of a package, and if you were over the 11 pound limit, it was uh, extra rates or extra fees, or they wouldn't ship it, and it didn't qualify for parcel post rates. Now, there's a lot of other information in this article that I'm not going to bore you with. It talks about computing the distance and the application of rates. But I will mention that it, the rate that this began with was a rate of 12 cents a pound. And there was also service available to Mexico, Cuba, and the Republic of Panama, and also the Hawaiian Islands and Alaska. Some of the other rules included that the packages had to include the sender's name, which we are accustomed to even to today in mailing packages. And in order to send a package, you had to take it to a post office or a branch of a post office. And they could not be placed upon letter boxes or package boxes located in city streets. They may be given, however, to any rural or star route carrier. So if you were in the rural area, you could meet up with your postman. And they had scales and equipment that was added to their vehicles that they carried around. And there's a little bit of a story I'll go into in that in a minute, but they were able to take and handle parcels on the rural route right in front of your home. And another interesting note is parcels must not be sealed and must be so prepared as to permit easy examination. And now let's get into some unmailable matter that was included in the article. From the very beginning, what you could not mail. And once again, this is coming from the article that was published on December 31st, 1912. All matter which is declared unmailable by law will be unmailable as a parcel post matter. This includes obscene, indecent, and immoral matter, intoxicating liquors, poisons, live animals, birds, and poultry, inflammable articles, and such things as raw hides or pelts or other articles having a bad odor. The regulations prescribe minutely Methods to be used in packing parcels, liquids and oils, paste and solves, sharp instruments, ink, powders, pepper, and snuff must be placed in watertight receptacles and in many instances surrounded by absorbent material to prevent damage to other male matter. Articles such as millinery, toys, musical instrument, and glassware must be labeled fragile. Now, here's what's interesting about the perishable items that they did allow. They basically allowed almost anything from a farm at that time to be shipped by parcel post, except live animals. And here's what it reads in the article. One of the interesting features of the regulations concerning perishable articles in this class are placed butter, lard, fish, fresh meats, dressed fowls, vegetables, and fruits and berries. Provisions is made for carrying almost every article produced on the farm except live animals and live fowls. In the local zone, little packaging is required. Within the first zone, that is for a shipment of 50 miles, all these articles must be enclosed in an inner cover and in a strong outer cover of wood, metal, or heavy corrugated pasteboard. 
and so wrapped that nothing can escape from the package. And here's one that will probably send your head spinning and wondering the ramifications of that in the modern mail system. And it was, can transport eggs. It has been demonstrated to the satisfaction of Postmaster General Hitchcock that eggs can be transported safely by parcel post. Of course, they may not be mailed in paper bags, but must be enclosed in proper containers. Parcels which cannot be delivered will take their course through the dead letter office. If a parcel should contain matter that, in of course, in transportations becomes offensive or injurious to health, may be turned over to local municipal authorities to be distributed to hospitals, asylums, and other similar institutions. Now, when I read that, I go, well... So if the eggs spoil and they start stinking, um, they don't just throw them away for you. No, no, no. They could turn it over to hospitals, asylums, and other similar institutions. Feed it to those folks. <laughs> Hopefully that was not the intent, but that certainly does sound that way in the initial article. Now, a couple other things. They did discuss the early forms of insurance for packages. Um, and additionally, they also mentioned that some of the perishable goods were limited to the first shipment zone of 50 miles, which is a very important point. So if it was a perishable good like eggs, I think they limited it to being within 50 miles of the existing post office that you sent it from. So let's go into some of the other stories that came up over the next decade, not only in Michigan. Some of these stories I did find in Michigan newspapers, as well as uh, Southwest Michigan newspapers, but also some stories from across the U.S. that are incredibly funny and eye-opening opening of what was being sent through parcel post. And I'm going to save the best for last because it is quite something. Here's a story that ran on January 21st, 1913. And this relates to Marshall, Michigan. Breakfast by parcel post. Here is the very latest parcel post yarn sent out from Marshall. The most unique parcel ever sent by parcel post was a steaming hot plate of buckwheat cakes, which Mrs. Holmes of Marshall sent to the Odd Fellows home in Jackson. Mrs. Holmes improvised a little fireless cooker herself and then placed the cakes in it and sent it to Mrs. Greenfield with a special delivery stamp on it. It was delivered to Mrs. Greenfield in time for breakfast. How about that? Same day service, so it arrives for breakfast by parcel post. Now, we take that for granted now with DoorDash and other types of food delivery services, but they had this back in 1913 through the U.S. Postmaster. Now, here's a story that came out in February of 1913, and it's about a woman who showed up at the post office to deliver a parcel, and she was shipping it to Buffalo, New York. This is a story that ran in the evening news. I believe this was a Marshall newspaper. And the clerk asked her how much the package weighed, and fortunately, she knew how much it weighed. And so she told him, and then he asked, what's in it? And when he asked this question, the lady did not reply. And she became very embarrassed, and a flush mounted on her face. And she slightly hung her head and did not appear to have noticed him. So the postmaster asked again, I say, lady, what is in the parcel? Again, she hesitated, and then she looked at him and she said, pants, replied the lady, my husband's pants. And so the parcel was shipped. So I guess she was very nervous at that time period about talking about her husband's pants being sent to Buffalo, New York. I wonder if she was doing it without her husband's knowledge and he was going to be looking for his pants or if he left town and arrived in Buffalo without his pants. 
Now, this article ran in June of 1913 in the Battle Creek Daily Journal, and the headline on the article is, A Farmer Who Orders His Dinner by Parcel Post. The Parcel Post is something for the farmer to rejoice over, for once we are ahead of our brothers in the city. This was a letter that he wrote to the newspaper, and I guess it was in another state. And he goes on, They must go to the post office or a postal station to mail their packages, while we can do it through our rural carrier with only a step to the road. This has enabled me here in Vermont to get individual customers 50 miles away and ship direct. I can send them a five-pound box of butter for 17 cents. Now, I have a list of customers who like fresh farm produce and are willing to pay accordingly. I drop them a line telling them of the articles I have for sale. And when orders are received and I send all articles under 10 pounds by parcel post. Over that, I find Express cheaper. I can send 10 pounds of maple sugar to Chicago for 35 cents. If I sent the same parcel post, it would cost me 79 cents. Another way I've used the parcel post is in the saving of the farm team and the time of a man. Needing some extra provisions for dinner? I telephoned my meat man for four pounds of beef steak to be sent out by parcel post. The meat was delivered to me by 11 o'clock with a charge of only 14 cents. I have come to the conclusion that the parcel post is only of benefit to farmers for small shipments and short distances. For long distances, especially on large packages, express rates are cheaper, but altogether, facilities are shipping now much better than before we had parcel post. So that was his take on it. Uh, he was able to order his uh, steak for dinner that night, and it only cost him 14 cents in delivery fees. Now, in June of that year, in the Battle Creek Inquirer, 1913, there was an article that described the conditions of the rural mailman at that point. And the article says, yes, you can pity the rural mailman now. He is loaded with equipment for parcel post. New systems have about doubled his work and causes him a lot of bother serving patrons. The transportation of the rural mail carrier into a traveling post office is now complete. The parcel post scales for supplying the local rural carriers having been assigned to the men yesterday. A rural mail carrier now carries the following equipment by official order, and many are wondering how they will carry and manipulate all of the paraphernalia in serving the rural communities. Parcel Post Scales, Parcel Post Guide, a book about the size of a good-sized dictionary, a parcel post map, more than a yard square, and which has to be carried in an envelope folded up and unfolded each time, and a guide showing the money order post offices. Imagine, said Charlie Jones, superintendent of mails, a rural carrier trying to serve a patron who wants to send out a parcel post package and the wind blowing a good gale. First, he has to take out his scales and weigh the package. Then he will have to dig around and get his map and unfold it, holding one corner in the air and trying to locate the destination of the first finger of one hand while the wind is flapping the map around. After he finds out where it is, he can, and he will have to stop and look in his guide and figure out the postage. Then, probably the patron will want to pay for it with a money order. Then he will have to fold up the map, put the guide and scales away, and dig out another guide to see if the post office, where the money is from, is a money order office. It is certainly getting to be a corker, the amount of stuff they will have to carry. And that was the 
article with a little bit of commentary from one of the local postmasters named Charlie Jones, who was the superintendent of mails. It certainly changed their job overnight, you can see, and it also is very interesting that the farmers in the rural communities seem to benefit immediately from being able to ship their goods by walking out to the mailbox and meeting the mailman. A very interesting time period. I don't think that that service even exists today for rural communities. I would imagine they have to drive into town now, and uh, maybe you could buy stamps from the mailman, but I don't think that they have postal scales in their cars anymore. Maybe they do. Maybe someone out there is a, an employee of the post office, and they could tell me about that. Now, by November of that year, 1913, there starts to be some interesting articles about people violating the rules and getting around the law and what they ship. And here's a story that was published in the Battle Creek Inquirer on November 5th, 1913. And the headline reads, Violate Law and Ship Birds Home by Mail. Annoying use is being made of the parcel post according to a recent report. Many get around officials. Postal authorities are making an investigation with the end in view of stopping illegal transportation of birds and furs. A new and decidedly annoying use in which parcel post is being put has been discovered by federal authorities. Wisconsin and Illinois hunters shooting partridges in Michigan are violating the laws by shipping their birds home by mail. According to the law, a hunter shall not kill more than six partridges in one day, nor have any more than 15 in his possession at one time. He may take 15 partridges home with him, but they must be carried as open-hand baggage and cannot be packed in a suitcase or shipped by mail, freight, or express. This year, the partridge hunting in the northern part of the state has had the best of many seasons, and hunters appear to find it hard to stop at the legal number of birds. It is claimed that they are shipping the birds through the parcel post by removing the breasts of the birds, wrapping them in oiled paper, and placing them in a package, usually the size of a shoebox. Then the hunter sends the package through the post office, as he is not required to sign his name there, in little chance of capturing him. It is said that many furs and skins were shipped out of Michigan in this manner last winter. Government authorities are making a thorough investigation. So those sneaky hunters were getting around the rules. But you can see their line of thinking. You couldn't send a bird, but you could send steak. So if the breast was pulled out of the bird, isn't it now meat? Interesting. So as you can imagine, by December of 1913, the first parcel post mailing was very huge at Christmas time. So by 1914, it was even bigger, and they were starting to be a little bit more organized with the Christmas rush. And there's this article that was published in the Battle Creek Daily Moon on December 14, 1914, and it's entitled, Now's the Time for Christmas Mail. And the Postmaster General issued a warning to all prospective patrons, and the article begins with a list of don't forget these don'ts. These were the don'ts that were issued by the post office. Here are the Postmaster General's official don'ts for Christmas users of the parcel post. Don't write address on flimsy paper. Don't use pencil. Don't use a tag if the address can be written on the parcels. If you do use a tag, don't fail to tie it on securely. Don't forget that no matter how carefully your address 
is on your parcel, it will be useless unless the address remains with the parcel till delivery. Don't be ashamed to learn how to tie a parcel from one who knows. Don't seal domestic parcel post. Those are some of the basic rules they issued in the article. The article goes on to say, Uncle Sam, modern Santa Claus, is getting his package pack ready and is asking the cooperation of all the assistant Santas in the country. He is ready to do his part, but he must have the proper help. Send your parcels by parcel post, but mail them early, proclaims the postmaster at all the post offices. The Parcel Post Division is planning to make the Christmas rush less of a rush. Patrons are vitally interested in having parcels delivered on or before Christmas, and every effort should be made to accomplish this, says the Postmaster General. Every means should be used to induce the public to avoid the congestion by distributing the mails over as many days before the Christmas as possible. It should be advertised especially that parcels may bear the words not to be opened until Christmas or other similar description. And then they issue a warning also that you have to also put the state on there. And they make the point, if your mail is to go out to a town, write the state plainly. There are 29 other Washingtons besides Washington, D.C., and there are 33 towns named Franklin, etc., so there's a little bit of an interesting story that the post office is evolving by 1914. Then there's an article in 1916, around the same time of year, November 16th. Parcel post in U.S. shows large growth. Statistics at post office show 1,100,000 parcels are handled annually. So fascinating growth over a three-year period in the United States that... They had crossed over a million parcels at that point, being handled annually around the U.S. Now, here's an interesting article that ran in August of 1919. The United States, of course, had been in World War I in late 1917 and 1918, and then the war was over and the troops came home. But the government had a supply of Army surplus food that was in stock because they had prepared for a much longer war than actually happened. There's an interesting article here published that time in August of 1919. It says, Army Food by Parcel Post. The government's offer to sell the surplus Army food stocked to the public by Parcel Post is probably as good a solution of two pressing problems as could be found. It ought to result in disposing of that troublesome surplus with a little bit more delay, and it ought to have an immediate effect on relieving the food situation and lowering retail prices of the commonest commodities. Attempts made to dispose of the accumulated stocks by carload sales to municipalities and big dealers do not seem to have succeeded. Private concerns, for some reason or other, have seemed wary of such goods, and the cities and towns have lacked proper facilities for handling them by selling direct to consumers, and the market is vastly broadened now with Parcel Post. The list of goods for sale, which shows considerable variety and covers some 350 million pounds of food that is distributed by 54,000 post offices. So that is just an interesting side note of a post-World War I story that involves Parcel Post. That is a lot of food. In January of 1919, there is a fully detailed article on how to prepare butter for packaging. And there's some really fascinating illustrations where they show the different layers of paper and that sort of thing. 
Now, I was curious in present day if you can still do this, and yes, you can. The United States Post Office has instructions for sending perishable foods, including eggs, which have to be properly padded and packaged, and perishable items like butter have to be in cold-packed or dry ice packaging, per their guidelines. And again, in November of 1918, there's a detailed article that's called A Bird in Hand, Marketing Eggs by Parcel Post. Non-fertile kind are favored. (laughs) Can you imagine getting a package and you're carrying it as a postman and having to deliver this, and maybe you had it in your possession a day or overnight, and a bunch of chirping birds come out from inside your parcel that you're carrying to another farm. Interesting. And so they go into all the proper packaging of eggs, but eggs were definitely shipped by parcel post as early as 1913. When I first read this, I thought that was kind of mind-boggling. You would think that that would be the most likely to be damaged, but apparently it was a common thing back at that time in the early days of parcel post. Now, here's a story that is kind of interesting. It is a first in the Parcel Post world in Battle Creek, and it happened in February of 1913 when it was launched just a month before. The headline of the article is Got a Pie by Parcel Post. The first pie so far, as it is known, to be received by Parcel Post in Battle Creek arrived in the city on Saturday afternoon. The pie was addressed to Vernon Sykes, at the YMCA building and came from Bellevue, where it had been made by Mrs. Sykes. No hungry employee of Uncle Sam is said to have devoured or even mutilated the big mince, and it was received in first-class condition. So that's a first for Battle Creek. The first pie came from Bellevue by parcel post and arrived at the YMCA building. They should put up a sign at the YMCA, don't you think? So up to this point, we've heard stories about perishable goods eggs, butter, things like that, that are being shipped by parcel post at this point. And there are even fresh made food, pies and meals and meat and all kinds of other crazy things that you could imagine were being shipped by parcel post in those first years. And those items would probably have more stricter guidelines today. But here is definitely something that is going to blow your mind about what was shipped by parcel post. Now, I did not find any specific cases of this here in Michigan, but I did find some stories published in Michigan newspapers about these stories and some in southwest Michigan. And I think it is going to be something that is going to be eye-opening to you. I found it quite funny, and I had to include this as part of this whole story. And it was actually the whole reason I wanted to do this episode, because it's just mind-boggling. So here we go. A woman in Sharpsville, Pennsylvania. Now, this is a story that ran in the Battle Creek Inquirer on February 1st, 1914. This is a year into the parcel post service. A woman in Sharpsville, Pennsylvania, sent a little girl, aged five, to a relative in Sharon, Pennsylvania, by parcel post. The postage on the child was only 45 cents. The extremely reasonable cost of this sort of transportation will no doubt encourage other mothers to try the same thing. Perhaps this is all very well. In the case of Martha Davis, the little girl mentioned above, the child was in the care of the conscientious 
and painstaking Mr. James Byerly, rural mail carrier of near Sharpsville, and esteemed by all his townsmen as more than an orderly, efficient carrier. Martha's mother, having every faith in gentle Mr. Byerly, spent no place of mind in turning her little dear over to his care. However, it is to be hoped that they act upon the suggestion of Mrs. Davis and other mothers, will take care to look into the character and integrity of the mailman. It would be best to select a mailman who has had children of his own, or at least one well fitted to care for a young child. Perhaps it would be even a better idea, too, if mailing children about is to become a prevalent custom, to see that special mailmen are appointed well able to care for a small child. Lady mailmen would be better able to look at this, and a five-cent stamp on the child's nose would indicate that the extra postage is paid for special attention as the little one has a cold. For a ten-cent stamp, the child would be given its bottle at regular intervals. So you're probably saying, is this real? Did this really happen? Well, hold on to your seat. I found other stories from across the country. Another Pennsylvania story from Sharon, Pennsylvania, January 27th, 1914. Janet Savis, who weighs 40 and a half pounds and cost 45 cents to send in the Savis home zone, was posted at Pine Hollow today and several hours later delivered to a relative at Clay Hollow. She went by wagon and parcel post, duly tagged and stamped. And the headline of the story was Baby Girl Sent by Parcel Post. Detroit Times, January 31st, 1913. Page 27, little baby sent by parcel post, just inside of weight and size, postage 15 cents, and insured for $50. Batavia, Ohio, January 31st, Vernon O. Little, mail carrier on a rural route number five, out of this place, is the first man to accept and deliver under parcel post conditions a live baby. The baby, a boy weighing 10 and 3 quarter pounds, just within the 11 pound weight limit, is the child of Mr. and Mrs. Jesse Beagle of near Glen Estee. The package was well wrapped and ready for mailing when the carrier got it today. Its measurements reached 71 inches, also within the law, which makes 72 inches the limit. Mr. Little delivered the parcel safely to the address on the card attached, that of its grandmother, Mrs. Louise Bagel, who lives about a mile from its home. The postal was 15 cents, and the parcel was insured for $50. How about that? That is an infant being sent by parcel post. Here's another story from Fargo, North Dakota. Baby is sent by U.S. Mail. Boy weighed, tagged, and forwarded by parcel post arrives at his destination safe. August 23rd, 1915 is this when this story happened. Railroad officials here are glad that the limit of dimensions and weight for parcel post packages are not great enough to include adult human beings. And while they are not worrying, they are nevertheless wondering when the practice of sending children 
in the state is going to stop. Recently, several children have been sent by parcel posts from homes in rural routes to persons in towns out of which the routes run, but probably the first instance of sending a child from one town to another by mail occurred here when Freddie Colby, a two-year-old son of Mr. and Mrs. Fred Colby, was shipped to the home of his grandparents at Valley City from Fargo. The mother was unable to accompany the boy to Valley City as Freddie came within the limit of weight and dimensions for parcel post packages. She took him to the post office, weighed and tagged him, and he went through without accident. How about that one? Now, I was curious, so I looked up what was the distance between Fargo, North Dakota, and Valley City, North Dakota, and it was a distance of about 61 miles. Here's a story that ran in the Albuquerque Morning Journal on October 24, 1919. Girl sent by parcel post, Phoenix, Arizona. October 23rd, Audrey Lenore Christie, six years old, arrived here today from Los Angeles, the first human parcel post package ever sent to Phoenix. When the little girl was met at the station by her parents, she said she liked the trip all right, but wished they hadn't stuck those ugly tags on my new dress and sweater. Audrey traveled by Pullman. She was sent by a railroad car. So now we're getting into greater distances. Danville, Illinois, July 18th. This was run in the Pine Pluff Daily in 1914 of July of that year. An eight-year-old Austin Kimball weighing 50 pounds, was offered at the parcel post window of the local post office for transportation to Coal City, Indiana, and accepted and mailed. Attached to his arm was a tag bearing the address and stamps. This article ran in the public ledger in Georgia in March of 1915. Savannah, Georgia, March 29th, little six-year-old Edna Neff, who weighs under the 50-pound limit, wearing a placard bearing her name and the destination and 50 cents in parcel post stamps, passed through the terminal station on her way from Pensacola, Florida, to Christianburg, Virginia. So she was sent for 50 cents from Pensacola, Florida, all the way up to Virginia and passed through Savannah, Georgia, on her way. Now, you may have noticed that at this point, their weight had gone up in terms of what was available to be shipped in parcel post. I believe it was around 1915, they increased the weight to 50 pounds, which certainly increased the possibility of people trying to ship their children because of the additional weight now. Originally, it had been 11 pounds, and uh, certainly people began to start sending their kids because it was pretty cheap to send them over to grandma's, it looks like. So I suppose you could probably put a stamp on your kid's nose when they step out of line and say, one more, I'm going to send you to Grandma through the mailman. Which kind of reminds me of a story that my brother-in-law told me when my nephew was really little. He had married my sister, and they had gone to Disneyland. Now, my nephew was about two or three years old at this visit, Disneyland, and they kept having a problem where he was running off. Every time he would see something new and exciting, he would let go of his parents' hand or, or take off running towards the item. And sometimes they saw him, sometimes they didn't catch him, and then he'd turn around and go look for him, and it panicked them a little bit. So my brother-in-law said, okay, come here. You can't do this anymore. You can't run off. So um, here's what I'm going to do. And he lifted up his shirt, and he took out a marker, and he wrote his home address on his belly. 
And he said, okay, so now go run as much as you want. If you get lost, just go climb in a mailbox and we'll pick up at home um, because we're not going to chase you anymore. And as soon as he did that, <laughs> my nephew would not leave their side. He stayed with him the entire time. Never was a problem the rest of the day of running off to go see any new colorful or fun item. He always stuck like glue to his parents. So little reverse psychology there. Something I was just reminded of when I was reading through some of these articles. And finally, I'm going to wrap it up with this story that ran in the San Francisco Examiner in 1914, February of that year. This is once again one year after the start of Parcel Post. And this is probably published in a tongue-in-cheek manner for the instructions are a little bit on the non-serious side. But here it goes. The article says, Two mail clerks, railway service. Babies by Parcel Post should be fed every four hours at expense of clerks. Do not stick stamps on baby's face. All railway mail clerks must pass an examination to qualify in the art of dressing babies and also in the knowledge of handling safety pins. Feeding is optional, but it is not advisable to give babies frankfurters or boiled dinners. Babies sent by parcel post must be delivered to someone at address. Do not leave them on front doorstep or in the mailboxes in rural districts. <laughs> if addressee refuses to accept such mail, wire Postmaster General for instructions. So there you go, folks. Sending babies and children by parcel post within the first decade of the emergence of this new form of delivery system offered by the post office. A lot of fun stories there for you. I hope you enjoyed listening to these. I certainly had a fun time looking these up, and I know that uh, not all of them uh, pertain specifically to Southwest Michigan, but it is an interesting time period when the beginning of Parcel Post in the United States, and perhaps I will do another episode on this in the future if I do some more digging on this. Uh, quite an interesting time period and uh, quite entertaining to look back at what people were willing to do with their children at that time and the trust that they had in the safety of getting them there. Quite the different time indeed. And this was over 100 years ago now. So that's going to conclude this episode. I wanted to ask you if you are out there and uh, using an app like Apple or Spotify, if you'll take a minute to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are using. It is greatly appreciated when you do that. And then if you would like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I have a contact form on there. There's also a way that you can contribute and donate to this podcast if you enjoy the content. Every little bit helps. You could sign up for giving a dollar a month to the podcast or something like that. It always uh, is appreciated and quite helpful to offset costs. But I also wanted to let you know that I've had a lot of folks reach out to me lately. I've been asked recently by Grand Valley State University to speak to one of their classes in the Battle Creek program here. I will be doing that in October, and that came from people reaching out to me through my website. And I've also been asked by Kellogg Community College to deliver some classes, which I mentioned in my last podcast episode in the spring of next year. So I'm working out the details of that. And when I have more dates and information, I will give you information where you can sign up for those classes. And we'll be talking about researching true, true crime stories in history. So that should be a lot of fun. 
And that's part of their lifelong learning programs that they offer at KCC. And I have other speaking engagements lined up. And I'm always willing to come out and speak to groups. Sometimes it's uh, appreciated if I get some sort of speaking fee to offset my travel time and, and time going there. Um, I'm speaking with the Daughters of the Revolution uh, in October, and that is always a fun group to share history stories with. They they enjoy reaching back in time and, and have all kinds of wonderful questions, and they're a great group of people. And as I've mentioned before in earlier podcast episodes, I do have a true crime book coming out. The title of the book will be Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime. And it is due to be released in March of next year. I don't have an exact time in March. I've been told it'll definitely be released by the end of the month in March. I just began getting my uh, manuscript back from the copy editor. And she has been talking to me all week. And I am in the process of reviewing the first round of the final manuscript from them on her edits and verifying that I agree with them. And then adding any final edits myself. And then once that manuscript is finished and I send it back to her, it will go into another stage where it's a final proof, which I will look at the final proof. And at that point is more of a cleanup of the manuscript, fixing any last minute typos that may be discovered at that point. And then from there on, it goes into cover design and into the pipeline for printing and publishing, where it will be available on time for delivery. And they, they may launch a, uh, a pre-order link as part of the uh, buildup for the release of the book. I know that they do that with other books that they publish. So as soon as I have the pre-order link, I'll let everybody in this audience know about it if you want to get a pre-order on it. So a lot of fun things happening also on my schedule. I have been invited to take part in the Dead Man's Hollow tour down in Union City. And I'll put the link where you can pick up tickets for that event in the show note descriptions. If I don't have the link in this episode, I will put it in the next upcoming episodes. So they just recently invited me to join and participate in the presentation that evening. So that's going to be a whole lot of fun. Went to my first meeting on that the other day, and it's going to be an exciting event, and they've already started selling tickets, so you're going to want to get your tickets early on that. And if you would like to follow some of the events that I am organizing for the Battle Creek Regional History Museum, the easiest way to do that is to go to the museum's website at bcrhm.org and sign up for the free newsletter. Put your email in there, and we send out a newsletter once a month, and it gives everybody updates on the upcoming events and things that are happening with the museum. And all of those events are run through me, and I am mostly are organized by myself. There are a few events that I do not directly organize, but I handle the marketing for the museum at this point. And the biggest thing that we have coming up on the calendar for the final quarter is Tales of Christmas Past. And that was a huge event last year. We had two sold-out crowds, and certainly people that attended that event are going to be wanting to buy tickets again this year because the feedback from that evening was just tremendous. And we're looking at the possibility of doing a third show on that. It depends on how early ticket sales go. If we end up selling out early, we may go ahead and schedule a third show for a matinee on that Sunday. But it is on a Saturday, December 16th. You're going to want to mark your calendar for that. Of all the Christmas events in the season in the Battle Creek area, this is going to be one that you're going to want to put on your calendar annually because we try to put you back in time a little bit and have you really get into the Christmas spirit. And I think everybody who attended that event last year just had a wonderful time. 
So the tickets aren't on sale for that yet. They will be going on sale in October, and I will let you know about that. I may even have some of my other cast members that are going to be part of that show come on with me to talk about that and probably on the release time of those tickets. So I highly encourage you to go sign up for the newsletter. Once again, go to bcrhm.org and enter your email address. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. If you enjoyed today's little episode about Parcel Post and wonderful stories from the early days of that, I hope that you will join me next time. And until then, when we take another journey into yesterday, thank you for listening.